Well, thank you, Lang family, for that incredible reading and reenactment of Matthew 21, 1-17. I believe in mission circles, that is what is called contextualization of the text. And uh, we do appreciate it anytime families get involved in reading the scripture together, uh, teaching their children uh, the stories of the Bible, and uh, engaging them in learning. And so that is incredible. But as we consider now, and as we continue in our series in Matthew, uh, you may have noticed that there's been a shift (laughs) in the scene. And the gospel shifts from the fourth discourse or teaching of Jesus into another stage now in Matthew uh, 21 that is more characterized by narrative and by movement again. Jesus is literally on the move into Jerusalem. And for the first time in Matthew's gospel, he has set the stage in Jerusalem. It's not the first time Jesus has ever been to Jerusalem, but it's the first time that Matthew has started to talk about his entry into the city. And Matthew has saved this final trip of Jesus into the city as a way of emphasizing its importance. And now he's going to spend the entire remainder of the gospel, uh, just a little over a quarter of his writing, focused on this final week of Jesus's life. It's like a painter who paints with greater detail on the focal point of a canvas or of a scene and with less detail on other parts. Matthew is focusing in on the detail of this final week of Jesus's life and ministry. And it's impossible to exaggerate its importance. This is the week that all of creation was waiting for and the week in which all of creation has its hope. Remember, as we began Matthew, Um, Many sermons ago, we considered the very first promise God made to regarding us our salvation in Genesis 3.15. God tells Satan after the temptation of Eve and Adam, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's it. The whole story of the Bible and 5,000 years of history comes down to this fulfillment. The promised descendant of Eve, traced through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and many others that we've talked about. That promised descendant or seed is going to crush the head of the serpent, even at the same time that his heel is bruised in the process of the crushing. This is the week that we're talking about in history. And we will conclude our time and our studying of Matthew, just as Matthew does at Easter and the resurrection in just a few weeks. But today in Matthew 21, we've not yet arrived at the cross. Jesus has told his disciples three or four times at least now that he is going to the cross. That is what must happen. But first, he will have proclaimed publicly what Peter said in private amongst the disciples. Jesus is going to proclaim publicly that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised king of the new kingdom. He's a promised king, a healing king, a saving king, a righteous king, and not a king only for the Jews, but a global king for all people. And so today, just as Matthew moves from 
discourse or teaching into narrative, we take a pause from the teaching, we take a pause from the lessons on how we are to live rightly with each other as citizens of the new kingdom that Jesus has been teaching us. And today, again like Matthew, we will simply marvel along with him in the glory of Jesus our King. And we consider the choice that this King gives us, the implications of King Jesus and the implications he has on all of our lives. So just as the kids reenacted and as Andrew narrated, I think most of us know the scenes of Matthew 21. This dusty rabbi who approaches the great city of Jerusalem, the donkey and her foal that are waiting just as expected. Then we have the ride through the gates of the city with the crowds and the multitudes of the people singing and the laying down of the branches and cloaks. And then we have the scene at the temple, the overturning of the tables and the cleansing of the temple of the money changers, the miracles of healing, the opposition of the chief priests, and then the parables that rebuke them. All of these things in Matthew 21 speak again and again and again of the kingship of Jesus. They say, behold, the king has come, not a secret anymore, but a public declaration that is on display. And so I'm not going to read the text again as we've had it narrated. And you know this text, you remember the scenes And although the triumphal entry captures most of our attention in this chapter, every other event that Matthew records here is emphasizing and re-emphasizing the same message. And we want to get carried along with him in his writing and understand what it is that Matthew is pointing at. And so we take this whole chapter as one narrative with an overarching message. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the king. Marvel in his glory. And so let's just unpack as an overview a few of these declarations as Jesus as Messiah and King and see what Matthew is driving at. First of all, obviously, this chapter begins with Jesus riding in on a donkey in verses 7 and 8. We have this event of him riding in in this humble way, and of course it's intentional. Just as Jesus knew the donkey would be there and his disciples would find her and her foal, he anticipated his arrival in Jerusalem this way, just as was prophesied in Zechariah 9. This is a declaration that Jesus is the king when he arrives this way. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, and behold... Your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so right off the bat, Matthew says, this is the king coming. Zechariah 9 said, this is how the king is going to come. He's going to come on a donkey along with a colt. And he's going to ride into the city in this way. Behold, daughter of Zion. And Zion is just another name really given to Jerusalem because Mount Zion is the highest point. Um, And so the Mount of Zion or Jerusalem is where the king is going to arrive. And this is how the king is going to arrive. And so Jesus declares publicly and the people celebrate him because he is the king arriving in the way as been foretold. And then it moves on to the casting out of the money changers from the temple or my house. 
He overturns the tables in the temple and he claims the authority and the right to do so. And while he is doing this in the temple, he is quoting Isaiah 56, 7, which says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He says, you're making it a den of robbers. And the significance of this lies in the context of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 56, which is the arrival of God's king and kingdom. And so by Jesus quoting this particular prophecy in the context of the arrival of the king and the kingdom, Jesus, by his actions and his words, is saying, this is my house. I am the foretold king. I have the authority to over the temple, and I have authority over your worship. And then Matthew goes on, and Jesus goes on, and he begins healing the sick in verse 14. He's demonstrating his authority over the curse of the world. Isaiah 35 says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so by his healing in this context, Jesus says, I am your king. I am your God who has come and I have authority over even creation. And then in verse 15, we have the praise of the children praising him as the son of David. And this praise and worship of the children, they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, the king is here, the king is here to save us. And this angers the scribes because they know exactly what this means. They know exactly what kind of worship Jesus is accepting for himself. But Jesus says plainly again, yes, they are talking about me. Don't you remember Psalm 8? Psalm 8 says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies will God's strength be proclaimed. And Jesus is saying, that's me, I'm God. I'm the one who accepts this worship. And I understand that you're angry because by me accepting this worship, from these children, I'm declaring that I'm God. And that makes you angry. But there is no question that the elders and the chief priests know exactly what Jesus is declaring here. That is why they are angry. And then if we were to go on in the chapter, Jesus declares that he is the king again because he confirms the message and the teaching of John in verse 32. Jesus rebukes the religious elite and he tells them that John the Baptist had already preached all of this to you and you didn't listen to him. John the Baptist already told you that I was the Lamb of God. John the Baptist already told you I was the Messiah. John the Baptist already preached to you that I was the coming king and the kingdom was at hand. And you did not listen to him, but I can affirm that what he was teaching was true. The prostitutes and the sinners listened to him, but you didn't. Even when it was proved to you, you still didn't change your mind, Jesus says. And then he tells a parable in verse 38. He tells them a parable of where he compares himself to the son of a master who is killed by ungrateful and wicked servants. And the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests are angry again because they know that he's talking about them. And then finally, in verse 42, although there's a few more in the chapter here, but I'll end on this one. Jesus tells them that he is the cornerstone who will be rejected, quoting Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. He says, this is what the, that which says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, 
again, the mountain of Jerusalem, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. And so Jesus says quite outright from prophecy again, I'm the cornerstone that you're rejecting. I am the one who is promised by God and you do not trust in me, but those who do trust will never be without hope. And so just as we survey these incredible events and statements of Jesus in Matthew 21, we survey them in order to experience what Matthew wants of us, his readers. He wants us to marvel and to glory and to cherish the beauty of Jesus as the king, long promised and now present. This is the coming of the king, and Jesus has made it as clear as day that he is the king. He's come as prophesied, and he has come with healing and all of these other characteristics. And these events and words are absolutely about this one thing, the identity and authority of Jesus as king, publicly declared now and undeniably understood. When Jesus used to heal people, he he would heal them and then he'd say, go and don't tell anybody about this. But when he heals here, he doesn't give that warning because this is now the time. King Jesus has come and he is making himself known. And the priests and the elders are not at all confused about what's going on here. They got it. They knew that this was a contest of authority. Matthew 21, 23 says, And when he entered the temple, this is the next day, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and he said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who has given you this authority? That's the question. What authority do you think you have, Jesus, and where do you think you have that authority from? This whole chapter is absolutely about the kingship of Jesus and his authority. And Jesus' answer to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to the elders is basically this. I have all the authority. There isn't any authority that I don't have. And I have all of this authority because I am the Messiah. I am the anointed king. But just as Jesus is declaring himself king, we can see that we can also learn what kind of king he is. And that would be good to know, wouldn't it? If Jesus is the king that he now publicly and clearly proclaims himself to be, and if Jesus has all the authority that he lays claim to, then we need to know what sort of king he is, don't we? And Matthew tells us that too. What kind of king is he? Well, first of all, he's the prophetic and promised king that, again, we saw in verse 5 and in Zechariah 9.9. We've already seen by the way that he arrives that Jesus is the king that God promised and the king that the world has put its hope in. But if we consider the rest of Zechariah's statement, we get some more detail. Not just that he's the prophesied and the promised king, but Zechariah tells us something about this king that comes. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, And having salvation, he is humble and mounted on a donkey. So Jesus is a righteous king. He intends to do good, not evil. Jesus is just and upright and trustworthy. He is the perfect reflection of God the Father in all of who he is. And that is good that he is a righteous king. Jesus is a savior king. Zechariah says that he brings salvation or victory 
In his coming to Jerusalem the first time, Jesus has the purpose of saving, not destroying. He's coming, he's not coming to wage war against us, but to win a war for us. And that is good that Jesus is a saving king. And he is a humble king, mounted on a donkey, not on a war horse, yet. Jesus comes in humility, not to lord it over the nations, but to invite the nations to himself. He's a king who comes to offer peace, and that is good. And then we see that he's also not only just righteous and bringing salvation and humble. Matthew tells us he's a purifying king in verse 12 as he cleanses the temple of false worship and of mercenary, greedy, selfish worship. He's a purifying king. He cleanses out the temple. He shows himself to be a king that purifies his people. He's a king who will remove wickedness and selfishness and who will root out greed and corruption. Malachi 3 says this, Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Suddenly, coming to the temple. Sounds familiar, right? And the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. Oh, yes, we desire him, and he has come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And so Matthew is declaring here and showing us that the king who comes is a purifying king. And then we see that Jesus is also a healing king in verses 14 as he heals those who come to him with illness. And Jesus comes to heal and not harm those who will be his citizens. Those who come to him in hope will not be disappointed. And then we see also that Jesus is an authoritative king. He has authority over the temple, over disease, over people, over creation. He has authority to judge. And finally, we see, as we consider the kind of king that has come, that Jesus is also a global king in verse 43. Verse 43, near the end of Matthew 21, Jesus says that since the high priests and the elders have not been faithful, then his kingdom is going to be shared with everyone, that his kingdom is open to any people who will come and be fruitful and put their hope in him. And then if we go back into Zechariah, which began his entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, if we go back to that prophecy of Zechariah 9, we read in the very next verse after 9-9 the same truth that God says the Messiah will bring peace finally to Jerusalem. But in addition to bringing peace, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It says in Zechariah 9.10. And so this king, Jesus, is a king for all people. Now that is a glorious truth. It is Matthew's every intent that we would behold the coming king in this way and that we would glory in all of his qualities, right? The the purpose of Matthew 21 at the most basic level is just the king has come, behold the king, see who he is. And that is an incredible chapter in and of itself. But Matthew isn't finished 
and satisfied with only that. Because there is a purpose to the way that Matthew has written this chapter that we must not miss. We have to, we have to pick up on all the declarations that Jesus makes of himself as Messiah. We have to pick up on all the qualities of this incredible king that we have just looked at and talked about. His righteousness, his healing, his victory, his salvation, that he is for all people. All of those things Matthew wants us to see. But he's not finished. There's a, the way he has written this drills even deeper than that. Remember that all through the book of Matthew, we've seen that he likes to highlight Jesus's teaching method of juxtaposition or contrast. And in this case, contrasted through this entire chapter, held in contrast to the king and those who recognize and worship him, we find woven through it, examples and parables of those who resist and reject him. And so this is a chapter of contrasts. Those who acknowledge and recognize Jesus and worship him and those who rebel and reject and refuse him. The most cynically religious that seek to benefit themselves from the trappings of faith are some of those. Jesus cleanses the temple but the money changers are the ones he has to cleanse the temple of. There are people who are cynically religious that seek to benefit simply from the trappings of faith. They are there simply for the benefit to themselves. And they stand in contrast to those who look to Jesus for their healing and salvation. Or another contrast is that maybe we are the buyers of the sacrifices at the temple, that we are filling our worship with a lot of outward appearances and putting on a good show on Sunday with, you know, whatever lambs or oxens we're bringing to sacrifice. And don't we look good? But neglecting our personal submission and relationship to King Jesus throughout the rest of the week. We have a great Sabbath presence, but not so great the rest of the, life, the time of our life. And then that leaves us being fruitless like the tree. If you were to go on in the chapter and read about Jesus cursing the fig tree that had many leaves but bore no fruit, and Jesus was frustrated because here is this tree that has all the outward appearance of health, that has shiny green leaves, but it actually doesn't have any figs for him to eat. And so again, Matthew and Jesus show us the contrast of the fig tree we can fool some people into thinking everything is healthy and good in our spiritual life, but we are not bearing any real fruit of righteousness. And Jesus knows the difference between a pretend fig tree and a real fig tree that's bearing fruit. Or we can be like the disobedient son of the parable in verse 28 to 32. Jesus tells this story of two sons and he asks the question of the elders and of the chief priests a simple question if you have two sons and you ask son, one of the the two sons to do something and one of them says no I won't but later changes his mind and goes and does it and the other son says I will do it but then he doesn't which son was obedient and the priests and the elders and the scribes they they know the right answer. Well, it's the one who does the will of the Father, even when he says that he won't. We would be far better off after resisting the will of God for a time in our life to finally decide to do the will of God, as opposed to just say that we're doing the will of God and not do it in the end. You see, there's this contrast through the chapters. 
whether it's the people who are worshiping or the money changers, whether it's the children who are praising or the chief priests who are rebuking them, whether it's the son who doesn't do the will of the father but says he will, or the son who, after resisting the father, does his will. As you go through the chapter, these contrasts keep piling up. And without question, we certainly better not be the outright enemies of God that is described in the parable of the wicked tenants in verses 33 to 41, where a a landowner, a master, has gone away and he's left his vineyard in charge of servants and he sends servants to them to care for the land and to manage it and the servants kill his the people that he sends. He even finally sends his son and they take his son and kill him. And the parable, Jesus says, when the master returns, he's going to destroy those wicked servants. So we need to be careful that we are not these people who willfully resist the messengers that God sends into our lives, who live off of the fruits of what God provides, but then give him no honor or worship, and in fact, even kill his son when he comes into our lives. Be warned that you are not stealing the blessing of God in your life while also rejecting his son. When the master returns, those people will be destroyed and his kingdom will be given to those that accepted him. And so you see here that Even as Matthew writes this chapter and records the teaching of Jesus, that there is a contrast that is threaded through all of this teaching. Yes, it is the return and the coming of the king. It is the glory of Jesus as the Messiah. It's painting the picture of all of these qualities of this king, our king that are so good. But then there are these contrasts juxtaposed to those of the king and those who worship him. And the question is simple, which will we be? Will we be the ones who praise the king or the ones who reject him? And all through Matthew and contrasted again here in chapter 21, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees represent the contrast. They represent those that reject and resist and rebel, who deny his identity, who deny his authority. And again here, they're juxtaposed. In verse 15, they resent the praise of the children. In verse 23, they question the authority of Jesus. In verse 32, they refuse to accept the prophecy and the teaching of John. In verse 42 and 45, they reject Jesus as the cornerstone. This is the contrast on display. This is the choice that we are given as we read Matthew 21. Where do we fall in the arrival of Jesus? It's plain that he's the king. It's plain that he has the authority. Not only is he a king with the authority, he's a good king. He's a saving king. He's a healing king. He's a king coming in humility. He's a king coming offering peace. He's a king for all people. Anyone can come to this king. Whose kingdom are you a part of? Which of these do you identify with? What is the evidence of your life of which kingdom you're in? Are you with the king and those who submit and worship him? Are you described by those who honor him and praise him? Or has Jesus described you with the priests and the Pharisees and the elders? Because there's one other contrast that we must come face to face with as we read this chapter. And if you've read your whole Bible, 
the contrast is unavoidable to miss. The contrast between the first coming of the King Jesus and his next coming. Because King Jesus is coming again, but he's not coming on a donkey. And he's not coming with an offer of peace to his enemies. We have this passage in Matthew contrasted in the writing of John in Revelation. So we've just talked about the coming of the king on a donkey and all his wonderful qualities and the praise that is his due. But now let's consider how King Jesus returns in Revelation. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey this time. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are a multitude of crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that contrast enough for you? Does that explain the warnings Jesus gives to his enemies? Not to threaten them, but to save them. The message of Matthew and the contrast of these verses is that now is the time to approach Jesus. Approach Jesus while he is still the lamb and not yet the lion. Lay down your sword. Lay down your rebellion. Seek peace with King Jesus now. This offer is not forever. It may seem like a long time that the offer has been on the table. 2,000 years already. But that is nothing in light of eternity. And for any one of us, the offer is only available for the eye blink of our lifetime. You may think you have a long time, but our lives pass away like the dew. So the message of the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem in Matthew 21 is, get to know him now, because he's coming again, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. King Jesus is offering amnesty to all of his enemies. You know, the word amnesty comes from the Latin amnestos. It almost sounds like the word amnesia, doesn't it? And that's because it, that's what it means. Amnestos, it means to forget a non-memory, a non-remembrance. Jesus offers to forget our rebellion. Jesus is a righteous, humble, saving, healing king of all nations and all people. Make him your king. He desires that you escape the wrath his enemies will face. He desires you to experience the joy and peace of amnesty, of sins forgotten forever with God, and with him. Jesus comes this first time with this offer. He's a humble king. He's a saving king. 
He's a peaceful king. He's a healing king. He comes with an offer to the nations to join his kingdom. And there are those that worship him and praise him. And there are those that reject and rebel against him. The contrast is clear. Which camp are you in? Will you accept the offer of King Jesus? Will you worship and glory in him? Because he is not only the prophesied king, he is not only the promised king, he not only has all authority, but he is a good king, and he wants your salvation. Trust in that king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chapter 21 of Matthew. We come to it every year as we approach Easter. We're approaching it a little bit early, and we've got a few more weeks now to go through the last week of Jesus's life now to just have some more time to unpack this final week. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the picture of Jesus proclaiming publicly his kingship in many ways. Thank you for the worship that he is receiving from people who recognize him. And Lord, I thank you for the contrast that you have shown, for the teaching of Jesus here in the parables and in the replies to the Pharisees and in the fig tree, the contrast that you have painted in your word between Matthew 21 and Revelation, so that we can see the difference, so that we can choose to accept King Jesus now while there's still time, while the offer of peace is held out to us, held out to all people. Father, I pray for those listening now, for those that listen later, that whatever rebellion, whatever scorn, whatever rejection, whatever denial they have of King Jesus right now in their life, so that maybe they're like the, the fig tree just pretending to be healthy, but really bearing no fruit, or maybe they're more like the Pharisees who are outright rejecting and dismissing Jesus. Father, I just pray that they would lay down their sword, that they would lay down their rebellion, that they would recognize you as a good and healing and humble and peace-offering king and come to you now while there's time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.